Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio today by regular commentator Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Good evening. And well-known local commentator on political events and issues, Michael Fahey. Good evening, Gavin. Right, tonight we'll be discussing Taiwan's delegation to Donald Trump's inauguration, pension reform plans, and Beijing's concerns about Honohai Precision Industry investments. But we're beginning with defence news, and the island's armed forces held their annual pre-Lunar New Year exercise this week, which this year took place a week after China's first aircraft carrier sailed through the Taiwan Strait after carrying out its own exercise in the South China Sea. And joining us on the phone now is Wendell Minnick, a person who's name is no doubt very familiar to anyone who follows Taiwan's defence issues. Good evening, Wendell. Yeah, good evening, Gavin. Right, and I hear this week that certain members of the local press got to a very rare glimpse of inside of one of the Navy's submarines this week during the exercise in Zhuoying. And of course, that comes at a time when Defence Minister Feng Shuquan is saying that the Liaoning's circumnavigating of Taiwan over the past weeks highlights the Navy's need to go ahead and build its own submarines. So where do you stand on the the indigenous submarine issue? Well, they certainly need submarines. They have two older guppies from uh, just after World War II. Uh, and they have the two Dutch-built submarines that are, that are operational. Uh, yeah, they need at least eight more submarines, diesel attack. Difficulty is on building them. Uh, it's a very complex platform, and um, it could take 10 to 15, 20 years before they're ready. I don't know if Taiwan has 20 years. Wendell, what other naval improvements could Taiwan's military be making in coming years? Well, they're certainly building more of indigenous platforms. They're planning on building their own destroyers um, and more frigates. Uh, they're trying to get away from buying American-used platforms. Um, they certainly need more surface-to-air missile systems, Um capable of uh, hitting faster targets at higher altitudes. Uh, but for the most part, they're building these, these new platforms to project force into the South China Sea to protect their, their islets down there. And um, to be honest with you, it might be a terrible waste of money. Um, Taiwan can't protect those islands uh, from China. Uh, they most likely will just take them at some point. Um, so, you know, the strategy is kind of... Uh, off-kilter a little bit. Right. Brian? Um, I mean, the submarine issue has been discussed for years, you know, like to buy submarines or to have submarines or to not have it. I mean, do you see any, any renewed push for submarines now, or is it just kind of the same, just, you know, talk? Well, in 2001, uh, the Bush administration offered Taiwan the opportunity to uh, build eight submarines with U.S. assistance. Um, and then what happened was 9-11. And any promises to Taiwan just got sidelined and, and continue to get sidelined. Uh, the Americans don't build diesel submarines, and we haven't built them in, gosh, the late 50s, early 60s with the barbell class. Um, so we're not 100% sure how to build them. And if we did build them, we'd probably just keep selling them to other people. And that's a problem because part of the deal was that the Taiwanese would pay for pay for the development research and development of submarines for themselves, but they wouldn't own the blueprints or any of that development. So whoever built them could continue selling them to other countries around the world, which is a, there's a very big market for diesel attack submarines around the world right now. Right, of course, Taiwan's also looked elsewhere for submarines. Malaysia, I believe, was one of the countries being looked at, and possibly Japan. Well, Japan has legal restrictions on selling uh, weapons as an export item 
they were working on changing those laws. Um, but the Chinese would go go, go nuts if uh, the Japanese sold uh, anything to uh, Taiwan on that matter. I, I don't see it happening. Uh, they have a, a tremendous amount of economic leverage. And the Malaysian submarines are old, and I don't think they have... I wouldn't trust them. Um, but, yeah, Taiwan will bring this up occasionally, that try to goad the Americans into providing the submarines uh, by saying that so-and-so country is going to give them to us or that country is going to give them to us or sell them to us. In reality, there is no such deal. Um, this is this happened. This goes back to the fighter cells, uh, the Mirage and the F-16 and the idea of when the, when the Americans refused to sell F-16s, the Taiwanese went forward with the indigenous defense fighter, and then Mirage fighters came in and they offered to sell, uh, and then the Americans panicked and said, "We're going to lose, you know, millions of dollars worth of sales." So then they sold the F-16. So they keep trying to use this trick to get the Americans to release certain items. Right. I mean, if you had to put a bet on it, do you, I mean, would you put a date or a bet on when Taiwan could actually develop its own submarines? There's obviously a program in place now, but obviously they haven't got anything built at all. Well, I, I, you know, like I said, it could take 10 to 15, even 20 years to have operational submarines here in Taiwan. And, and my argument has been, and, and I'm not the only one, that they don't really have 10 to 15 to 20 years to, to survive. Uh, you know, submarines aren't going to make any difference. They don't have much time. The Chinese are building such a massive force, uh, so rapid, so so deadly that they, they really don't have time to muck around with submarines. They need to get ready for the battle for tomorrow, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now. Uh, uh, 20 years is too far, too long. A bridge too far, as you might, might say. Well, Wendell, if, if submarines aren't going to do the trick, what can Taiwan do? It needs to prepare for the fight now, today. And how should and it I mean, do that? Uh, more training for your uh, infantry. Um, get, get guys ready for it. Uh, and they have to improve so many things at so many different levels. But uh, one thing is calling up reserves. And right now they do that with postal. They mail they mail these cards out. Um, that's not going to work in a war, obviously. Um, the Singaporeans have a very good system where they they have a, uh, a little beeping uh, number on the side, on the corner of their televisions that indicates that a certain reserve unit is being called up. It's, it's based on the Israeli system. The TV will actually flash. Um, that's a pretty good way of doing things. But you've got to get your infantry and your special forces people and your Marines, and you need to give them anything they want in terms of training and preparation. Because if, when the Chinese hit this island, it's not going to be very pretty. Right. Well, that was jolly news for this wonderful Friday for us. Thank you for that, Wendell. And, yes, we've been speaking to Wendell Minnick there of Shepherd Military Media. Thank you very much, Wendell. You're welcome. Well, from those rather unjolly defence issues, we're now moving on to controversy regarding the government's plans to reform the state pension system, which all seems to be turning into a rerun of the labour law hullabaloo with hunger strikes, protesters and police, and a policy, well, that's yet to be finalised. But we do know some things about it, as Vice President Chen Jianren on Thursday held a press conference in an attempt to stand 
stamp out a flurry of speculation over the reform proposals. Now, some of these proposals, obviously he came out with about nine proposals. In fact, we're not going to cover all of them, but a couple of them. Well, the government planned to end a preferential 18% bank interest rate on pension deposits for public sector employees. They plan to lower the replacement rate of public servant incomes gradually to 60%. They plan to extend the insured salary payment period that is adopted as the basis for calculating pension payments. And more frighteningly for many, they plan to increase the retirement age to 65 in order that people in the public sector receive their full pensions. So... Michael, the pension reform, good thing, bad thing, could all turn into a big old mess. Well, proponents of the pension reform claim that this is absolutely necessary or the Taiwan's public pension system is going to go bankrupt by uh, 2030. The 2030s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reforms are actually only going to keep it in business till the 2040s, so this isn't as major as some people might think. But as your summary suggested, this is an extremely complex issue, and I would say politically even more complicated than the labor law issue. And we all know what happened there, didn't we, Brian? I mean, it's, it is also a labor law issue in some sense. I mean, you know, you did see massive mobilizations, and, you know, while some do point to the shadow of the KMT being present, I think that, you know, I mean, a lot of people will be upset about this because, you know, they were expecting their pensions, and now there are all these changes. But it's, it's a problem the Thai administration inherited from, you know, the long history of even the KMT party state, given that, you know, military officials and, you know, teachers and, you know, there are a lot of different pension systems around then. And, you know, how to, how to kind of systematize this in a way that doesn't lead to blowback. Um, but do you think it will eventually, I mean, obviously, if you're making people now have to work to 65, you're going to get some kind of blowback. Exactly. So, you know, there's kind of no way to really, I think, you know, minimize that completely. But, I mean, Michael, do you think these, this is going to be, obviously, it's going to be a mess like the labor laws. But do you think some, obviously, it's a, it's a more complex issue with the pension system. Do you think the public will be left scratching its head for long after lawmakers are even beginning to review it? I think the public is already deeply confused. You've just summarized nine different proposals to reform the system. You need to keep in mind there are 15 or 16 different pension systems that they're talking about. This is not going to be something that uh, members of the public are going to be able to keep straight on a day-to-day basis. On the other hand, resentment over so-called generous pensions to public servants, teachers, and military dependents uh, has been a political issue for many years that the DPP has made political hay out of. Uh, It will also be an issue for the KMT to try to get back on track politically. So you can expect a big bruising fight for several years over this. Let's remember that it doesn't even get started until these proposals go to the legislative UN, at which point we have no idea what will happen. Yeah, of course, the, the actual the Pension Reform Committee is meeting this Sunday, I believe. They are meeting this Sunday. Apparently, the government have tried to sort of dampen down public fury by saying it's going to be broadcast online in its entirety, so it's going to be completely transparent. But mm. will you be tuning in? I, I don't think so. Uh. <laughs> I'd rather try watching that. <laughs> and of course, you were mentioning that the, the controversy. Of course, one of the most controversial things is the preferential 18% bank interest rate on pension deposits for public sector employees. Now, while we don't know this has happened for sure, there's long been speculation and allegations that certain public sector employees have been basically using these bank accounts for their friends and family. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, it goes back to the fact that there is resentment against, you know, the public sector for having these pensions, and they are seeing as benefiting from this and, you know, kind of gaming the system. So I mean, that can be a political issue. I mean, that's something the DPP can actually leverage on. But at the same time, if the DPP does that, it has to avoid, you know, the perception that's persecuting a specific social group, um, which is, you know, what 
what you know what what uh what protests against the DPP labor, uh, uh, pension reforms have claimed. Right. Of course, the government also said it plans to inject funds into the pension system. But where do you think the government's going to get these funds from? They're going to have to increase taxes. But that's not what they're going to do because because they're they're going to increase according to the what that's been laid out this week. They're going to increase business taxes, but they're going to actually decrease individual taxes, which of course has probably left even more people scratching their head. Well, you're going to give deductions, but you want more money. Well, they're claiming that overall that the uh, the tax intake will not increase, but I find that difficult to believe over mm-hmm. the long run. I think they're just sugarcoating it for the public. Mm-hmm. More taxes are going to be needed to save public pension funds, and that's not going to be popular. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, well, Brian, what do you see them taxing in future? Anything? I mean, you know, it, it is a it is in this sense like sort of you know, liberal reform. So you know, they're not going to be taxing you know the wealthy, for example, and that's that's unfortunate because you know, like that that solution has not been introduced into the discourse by the DPP. Yeah, As, they might be forced to actually introduce that system. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, if so, then there'll be blowback from, you know, the same kind of groups that resisted the labor law, and we'll see how the DPP responds to that. Yeah, there was an interesting comment yesterday by, I believe, the General General Chamber of Commerce head, who turned around and said he believes, or rather his members believe, that these new pension policies could do more harm than the new workweek labor laws have done to certain industry sectors. You think that's going a bit far? I think that I think that this is this is a battle for the very soul of Taiwan, as dry as this topic may seem. <laughs> over over the decades, the KMT built up its party state by creating a class of people inside of it, people who work for the government, soldiers, teachers, civil servants, who enjoy benefits that the rest of society don't get. The story of Taiwan politics for the last 20 years has been an attempt by the DPP to equalize some of those benefits. So there's tremendous resentment over these benefits, and the pensions are probably the touchstone of, of that benefit system. And and there's going to be enormous political capital expended on trying to even push through rather limited reforms. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see that it will create political deadlock that probably will not be the kind of thing that business leaders are going to want to see. Right. Thank you, Michael. And of course, we have to take a short break here for these important messages. But we'll be right back here with Taiwan This Week. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And there's a delegation of representatives from Taiwan's main political parties in the United States this week to attend, well, today's inauguration of President-elect Donald Trump. The delegation is being led by former Premier Yoshi Kun, who had used the opportunity of being in the United States this week to call on China's President Xi Jinping to hold peace talks with Taiwan. He also has said that Taipei will not intervene in any issue related to the US possibly reviewing its one-China policy under the incoming Trump administration. So, Michael, two calls there that offer nothing really new, but do you think they may have some significance this time around, as, of course, Trump and the Republicans have retaken the White House, and he hasn't been very nice to China, has he? Well, according to Trump, the one-China policy is under negotiation, which must have been quite a shock for Beijing. I think quite sensibly, Yoshi Kun and the delegate. Uh, the delegation that's in Washington is uh, their theme is low key, low key, low key. They just want to show up. Uh, I don't think they're going to be talking about the one China principle. Now, of course, there's, there was always speculation before they went that they would actually meet with Trump transition team members, but apparently that's been scuttled now because they're not going to. I think that was uh, akin to the rumors that 
President Tsai would have a chance to meet with the Trump team during her visit to Houston. That didn't happen. It's certainly not going to happen in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. There are limits to even what the Trump administration will do. So, Brian, what do you think of this delegation that went? Obviously, it's being headed by Yoshi Kun, the former premier and DPP heavyweight, to coin a phrase. Of course, several lawmakers are there. Um, the mayor of Taichung, I believe, and the mayor of Jai County. You know, this, this delegation is sort of high-powered enough to make a, a, a point that it wants to make? Or do you think they could have sent other people, possibly? Um, I think that, you know, whatever happens, it will get overanalyzed. And, you know, whatever happens with this group that goes there, um, you know, you do need people that are important enough when, you know, the winds of change are possibly happening. But I will just have to see. Um, I think that, you know, just whenever, you know, any any group of officials goes to Taiwan or from Taiwan to America in the near future, it's going to get overanalyzed to death and, you know, with Trump, it seems like a lot is up in the air, so I'm not sure either. They don't know. Of course, China has belly ached about Taiwan's delegation being there, and they've actually called on America to ban them from attending the event. I mean, more hollow words from Beijing? Well, I think this is a direct response to comments that Ted Cruz made when he met with Tsai in Houston recently, when he said that America is a democracy and will choose who can visit and can't visit. Mm -hmm. So now China is turning around and trying to see whether or not they can influence the United States about who can Mm -hmm. visit or not. To me, one of the interesting things about the delegation and possibly a reason that the uh, Chinese are so unhappy about it is its composition. You have uh, a relatively deep green representatives from the DPP, the Jiayi County mayor. Uh, you've got Yoshi Kun, who's uh, mm. very local roots. And let's not forget that Freddie, uh, a outspoken Taiwanese independence advocate from the New Power Party and a heavy metal singer, is also on that delegation. And so I think the composition of the delegation is also mm. raising some eyebrows of from Beijing. Tai Jong Mei Lin Jialong. Also from the DPP is in the delegation. Mm. I also do wonder about Yoshi Kun being a, a Chen Shui-bian supporter, a very strong supporter, you know, yes. whether that will provoke panic. Um, Lin so. Jialong is a moderate, but the uh, mayor of uh, Jai County and Yoshi Kun are pretty hardline, deep Chen Shui-bian supporters and well-known for, well known for their outspoken pro-independence views. Mm-hmm. Um, China also protested before, you know, Tsai, Tsai announced her plans to transit in, in the U.S. because, you know, they protest against that too. I mean, uh, I think that might be a continual refrain of China going forward whenever, you know, there's like a delegation or something like that. But, you know, also, I mean, Yoshi Kun is leveraging on this currently to, you know, paint China's whining about a very minor thing. And so, you know, I think that's part of the DPP strategy, you know, phone calls, you know, visits, stopovers, you know, why is China complaining about all this? You know, why don't they just let us do this very minor thing? Now we'll turn to some business news that made headlines here in Taiwan this week and Beijing's concern that Honhai Precision Industry plans to step up investment in the United States, leaving poor China behind. And according to Bloomberg News, Honhai Chairman Terry Guo was forced this week or last week, we don't have a time frame on it, but he was forced to reassure Beijing that his company has no plans to withdraw capital from China. Why is this important? Well, of course, Honhai is a Taiwan-owned company and they employ a staggering one million workers in China. And believe it or not, Honhai is actually one of the largest employers in the country. And of course, not knowing much about business like I don't claim to do, I actually spoke with regular ICRT contributor Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory earlier this week about the Honhai issue and this is what he had to say. 
So how do you view Beijing's seeming rush for assurances that Honhai won't cut investments as being a good sign for other Taiwan-owned companies which also operate major manufacturing facilities in China? Well, the interesting thing here is we're in a period of increasing tensions and obviously China wants to show the world that China is open for business and China is welcoming uh, foreign investment. Although the other side of this is we're in this period of increased tensions between China and Taiwan on the political side as opposed to the business side. And that also has some negative impact for Taiwan companies because the operating risks in China have increased along with an increase in political tensions. Uh, But if China is showing that it is welcoming to Taiwan investment, obviously that's not just good for the largest and most prominent investors like a uh, Foxconn Hornhai, but also all the downstream suppliers that work with uh, the larger companies like a Foxconn. And remember, there's a, there's an ecosystem there, Gavin, right? It's, it's not just the one large company making the products. They work with a lot of other suppliers who provide the smaller parts that go into the finished product. And very often, those are Taiwan-owned companies, and they have a lot of Taiwan staff working there uh, or on, on, in China, or they're supported by their corporate headquarters here in Taiwan. So uh, if China is being uh, uh, welcome, welcoming to uh, Taiwanese investment. That's obviously good for Taiwan companies. But do you think this incident shows that Taiwan companies, larger ones, obviously, possibly have some leverage over the Beijing? Well, that remains to be seen. And again, it, it's in conjunction with where we are with political tensions, because uh, as we were just discussing, operating risks have increased in China for Taiwan companies. It's, it's a difficult operating environment to begin with for any kind of foreign company, whether Taiwan, U.S., European, Japanese. Uh, so I think it still remains to be seen whether those kinds of operating risks like regulatory challenges, tax audits, and things like that will be reduced for Taiwan companies. Uh, so they may not have an advantage, uh, but uh, if other companies are rushing to show uh, the new Trump administration that they're eager to invest in America uh, and, and are fleeing China, but Taiwan companies are, are saying we're still willing to go into China, obviously that, that might open uh, some space for Taiwan companies to pursue opportunities that other foreign companies are, are now trying to get away from pursuing. I mean, with Honhai, it's a question because, you know, uh, Terry Guo, there's talk of him relocating jobs to the U.S., but there's also, you know, he said that he'll relocate many jobs to India. He, in fact, said he would create like one million jobs in India and move, build 12 factories there, which is, you know, the same amount of factories and the same amount of workers they have in China. And, you know, previously there was panic in China about the fact that he's planning on automating 60,000 jobs with, you know, robots. So, you know, I mean, Terry Guo is a businessman. He goes where the money goes. Um, and the question is that, you know, Maybe he's gearing up for a run for president. So how will that, as as a candidate of the KMT, so how will that affect cross-state relations and so forth? Right. So we shall leave the Honhai Institute and move on to the KMT, which we've been covering the KMT for several weeks now and its election. But it's now shaping up to be a rather heated affair. Former KMT vice chairman Steve Jan earlier this week said that he'll make a final decision on whether to run for the KMT leadership post before the Lunar New Year. And if he does opt to throw his hat in the ring, well, then he'll be joining incumbent KMT chair Hong Shou Chu, former vice president U Duni, former Taipei city mayor Haolong Bin, and Taipei Agricultural Products Marketing Corporation general manager Hang Guoyu. Now there's some heavy hitters there, and if Steve Jan, of course, does run, a very crowded field with some rather different views on the party's direction. Could it all end in tears, Michael, or do you see a, a big winner coming out of this? Well, I think that for the KMT, 
this unprecedented level of party democracy can only be a good thing for the KMT. We should probably explain that one. Um, the last election for the KMT, there were four candidates. The election before that, there was one candidate. The election before that, there was one candidate. So there you go. I see where you're going on the democracy part there, Michael, on the KMT. But I think this time the competition is real and healthy. Uh, and it's not clear who's going to win. A key factor for anyone who wants to become the KMT chairman is support from the so-called uh, Huang Fuxing Department of the KMT, which is largely uh, uh, controlled by people who uh, have relations with the military. Uh, there are very special constituency inside the KMT, and it's unclear that for Taiwanese candidates such as Udoni are going to be able to command much support from them. Their support is crucial. The KMT's demographics and political structure <clears throat> does not reflect society as a whole. So it's going to be very hard to see who's going to win this one. Right, Brian? Mm, I mean, with the major changes instituted by Hong Xiuzhu, with the integration of the Fuxing chapters into the regular KMT, I mean, that's a sign of the crisis of the KMT, that it's in you know such dire straits that all this restructuring is going on. Um, regarding the democracy aspect, I mean... I think that Hong Xiuzhu actually sort of paved the way for this, that a lot of new candidates want to enter now in the hopes that they can similarly elevate themselves from an unknown position to becoming a superstar in the way that Hong rose from a fairly being a fairly unknown politician to becoming, you know, someone that everyone in Taiwan knows. Um, what will the result of that be? You know, all this fighting over the, the pie of the KMT? It's, it's really hard to say. But, you know, it, it does indicate to what extent the party is... is being forced to change or restructure, whether it likes it or not. Right, and the KMT election, of course, is slated for May the 20th, unless they change the date again on us. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that in the near future. But before we go, we're going to hop onto a bus now, a big red double-decker bus, that is, that's now plying the roads of Taipei. And this is Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jiu's idea to, well, attract more tourists to travel around Taipei on the roads. It's the city's first hop-on, hop-off double-decker bus service designed for tourists. The bus is painted a rather gaudy bright red, comes with free phone charging devices, Wi-Fi connection, and if that's not enough to attract you to jump on it, there's an audio tour guide service in Mandarin, English, Japanese and Korean. So, Michael, where will you be taking the big red double-decker bus? Well, I would consider taking it out on one of the two routes, which is out to the National Palace Museum. There's not really a convenient way to get from city center to the National Palace Museum, and it's certainly at the top of any tourist bucket list. So I, I could see I, I haven't been to the National Palace Museum in years. This might be an interesting way to do it. The only thing I'm worried about is that I'm going to get rained on on that upper deck. Oh, yeah, because, in fact, there are 47 seats on the upper deck. 37 of them, of course, are open to the elements. Yes, but of course it could take you a long time to get from the Taipei train station to the National Palace Museum because it doesn't just go down Zhongxiao West Road and Zhongshan North Road. 110 minutes for each of the shortest trips. 110 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. incredible. To complete the routes. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty good... And I believe you pay 300 or 400 NT. But I would imagine that you can stop off at the Shirley Night Market yeah, you, and then you, get back you, on. You can get off and you wait for another mm -hmm. bus and you get on again. Basically, it's not a bad idea, and it's a big red double-decker bus. Brian, will you be taking the big red double-decker bus? Uh, I think I'll stick with the MRT, but uh, I mean, for sure it might be fun. <laughs> I think I'm going to take it. I think it's quite a funny thing to do, go on an outside bus in Taipei. I might not be doing it in the winter, though. I think that would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Right, so do I. <laughs> right. 
Right, and anyway, we'll have to leave you now, and that's all we've got time for on today's Taiwan This Week. And today I've been joined in the studio by Brian Hugh and Michael Fahey. Thanks, Gavin. Mm, thanks for having me. And we won't be airing Taiwan this week next Friday, January the 27th, as it'll be the eve of the year of the rooster, and we'll be off for the Lunar New Year holiday. But we shall return on Friday, February the 3rd. So happy Lunar New Year from me, your host on today's Taiwan This Week, Gavin Phibbs. Mm-hmm.